There's a huge chasm in the market between The Times, The Washington Post, and CNN, and then on the other end, the Substacks and Patreons of the world. There's a wide, vacant middle that is being repopulated before our eyes. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, October 24th, which means, of course, it's Media Monday. Today, John Kelly and I talk about the launch of Semaphore. Is it living up to its ambition, or is it too early to tell? And we discuss the brothers Cuomo, Chris and Andrew. Both of them fell from great heights, and now both of them are striking out into the media universe. I'll ask John, just who will listen to Andrew Cuomo's new podcast? We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode, Powers That Be. Hey guys, it's Peter. I travel all the time, especially in an election year. And as we all know, what luggage you choose matters. Briggs & Riley is my personal favorite because their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they will repair it free of charge. No proof of purchase needed, no questions asked, even if an airline damages your bag. All features were created to address customer pain points for a better travel experience. They're extremely durable with rigorous testing and premium materials to last for life. And one thing I love, they're supremely smooth, shock-absorbing wheels for easy gliding through your travels through whatever airport you're zooming through. And hot off the press, the Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It's new and improved and just launched on BriggsRiley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. It has the new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, and then compress it to its original size. So a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, and that's just one of the new features. It's available in black, navy, and olive. So check out all the Briggs and Riley offerings at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Happy Monday, everybody. If it's Monday, it's Media Monday. I'm joined today by the boss man, John Kelly. How are you, buddy? I'm good, Peter. Glad to see you. Glad to see you too. Before we get into the podcast today, we're going to talk about the Smiths and the Cuomos, and we'll get to what that is in just a second. But I was hanging out with my friend Frank the other day, who is a powers that be power listener. He was like, have you ever thought about triangulating the actual intersection of Hollywood, Washington, Silicon Valley? and Wall Street on a U.S. map. And so we worked it out. Can you guess which state the actual intersection of those four power centers is? So this is the midpoint uh, between those four uh, sort of rectangular um, uh, (laughs) Des Moines? Close. It's Oklahoma. Oh, interesting. Oklahoma. So we have to do like a live show, I guess, in Oklahoma at some point, at least just one Media Monday. So John, I want to start today with just your opinions as a, you know, you're humble guy, but you're you're a founder now, like you founded Puck. Um, Semaphore, an ambitious media project by Justin Smith and Ben Smith. It's gotten a lot of buzz among media insiders, raised a bunch of money. They had their launch last week. What's your take on it? As we like to note here, um, everyone's friends with everyone. I know as you do how hard these things are. So I, th- I think I, I look at this through the eyes of um, being uh, happy and proud of guys who had an idea, left like well-paid, successful jobs and just like went for it and and totally didn't have to. Um, Most very cool things never happen because people get complacent and satisfied making a lot of money. So I think that just like immediately they deserve a lot of credit for just shaking it up and and doing something different. 
I guess here are my like top line thoughts on Semaphora. It reminds me a lot of, um, from a design and, and um, digital being point of view, it reminds me a bit of airmail when it launched in that it's, it's trying to, to be re reflective of a kind of foreign daily newspaper. Uh, airmail, I think, is, is one of the most stunning things you can find on the internet now. You know, it, it worked its way in that direction. I think that it had a sort of a, a printy quality and an analog quality that was eventually refined to be a, a digital version of a printy and analog, and analog quality. Like I, I think that the clocks, the logo on the on the homepage are, are lovely, but I think the founders may view them as a bit cluttered. I know that Richard Turley, an old buddy of mine, worked on this, and I can see a lot of his masterstrokes at work here. I think that they're publishing a lot of work right now. We're taping this on a Sunday, and I opened Semaphore this morning to see what they were leading with. I was curious if they were publishing over the weekend or if they'd stopped on Friday. And they had the news about Xi and, and Xi being the most you know, powerful uh, Chinese premier since Mao, which was what was also on the New York Times homepage as well. So I think that in their initial stages, I'm sure they're going to want to be doing their version of a lot of what other people are doing. But I think that to be successful in this space, you have to do something different. I mean, I, I don't want to speak our book here, Peter, but I think that that's something that we feel like Puck would never want to compete with the New York Times. We want to be additive because we know that everyone who subscribes to Puck is already subscribed to the New York Times. So I think that they're working their way out there, but certainly like it, it's it's classy, well done work. I think the things that, that interest me the most really though ha have less to do with the content. Like Ben's a really smart guy. They hired smart people. They're going to do good work. That seems pretty clear and obvious to me. I'm focused mainly on the business model and on the financing. And the business model uh, interests me because they've launched with a number of high-flying sponsors, Tata, and I think Chevron I saw there, I think Verizon, there's a half dozen. It's an ad-supported business, and they're trying to create a premium upscale digital product that they deliver through email and charge a CPM premium for, which is the Axios playbook. I know that if you can prove in Washington that you're reaching an elite audience, you can get subscribers to pay that CPM premium. But I'm surprised that they did not launch with a paid product. I, I think that most people would pay sight unseen for what Ben is doing on, on Sundays. I think that Steve Clemens is a massively connected guy in Washington. I think people would pay sight unseen for that. And I think that, you know, given that they've hired 60 people, they could have found a marketing team of five in there that would build out those products and, and unite Semaphore. And the last thing is that, and this is in the weeds, I, I know that I talked about this with Dylan on Friday a bit in his newsletter, but my understanding is this is $25 million safe financing. So that's a, you put cash in and it converts to future equity. It's different from a traditional Series A. And a lot of uh, startups do start this way, but on a much smaller cash level. To me, that signaled two things. It signaled that they had a ton of support from their investors and that they were really the ones in charge, which is the way it should be. To me, early on in an investment, you want a couple people who really, really hold you accountable, either on your board or, or who've put a meaningful amount of money in, who are the discipline of the round. And I don't know if you get that with the safe financing. So it means that they're going to have a ton of latitude, but it also, it makes you wonder how financially motivated are their investors going to be? Because you, you do, when you're in the boardroom, you do want to look across the table and have investors who are deeply motivated to build the wealth of you. And I think that they have a, a company that has been governed in a way that is more passive. Yeah, and I think if you're an investor, you will obviously look at it from a business perspective and your analysis on this stuff is really smart and better than mine. But you're also going to look at it the way I look at it, which is, are you actually doing what you set out to do? Like the ambition from the get-go was to create an English-speaking news organization that rivals CNN, the New York Times, whatever. And they will succeed based on the reporting. Like if their reporters start to break a bunch of big stories and so they've broken some 
scooplets along the way, like since since launching uh, and even before they were dropping some news on on Medium. <laughs> but, you know, are they going to be, quote unquote, high impact and like driving the conversation and like those things that John Harris and Jim Vandehei and Mike Allen say back in the day when they started Politico? So you triggered me with, with the harris Vandehei connection because I think when they were at Politico, they believed this was sort of Jim in his early post-journalist rapture towards the C-suite. He believed that companies were built on scoops. I think that when he got to Axios, if you recall uh, how they started. The first year, Mike Allen was a scoop machine. But after that, they fundamentally pivoted. And Axios was not this hair trigger wired thing. It, it was it was connected. It, it was the smart brand. Everything was powerful. But it wasn't a news hungry business. It focused a lot more on brand and just building out capacity beyond what Mike did. So I think that that would be um, long term. I, I think actually the play that Simifor is going to make that this is going to be a beautiful thing. It's going to be upscale. It's going to be a, a Louis Vuitton type news service. And um, that's more of an economist type lane, you know, than probably a, a CNN. Anyway, sorry, Ted, Ted talk over. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned Axios. When they launched, there was Mike's newsletter and then they built another vertical and they slowly kind of like built out from there. And now they talk in grand terms about Axios being essential. And part of this is like me working in Snapchat, part of this is me working at Puck. It's like, I just have this thing where it's like you start and you build and you don't talk about it too much until you have something to talk about and like show. That's just how I think about building businesses or brands. And I'm not an entrepreneur in that way, but uh, you know, they're just starting out of the gate being like, bam, here it is. We're covering Africa. We're covering Wall Street. We're covering China. We're covering the Wisconsin Center race. It's like, okay. People were like throwing some darts at them on Twitter when they launched, mostly because of like the design choices, I think. But like, they'll be allowed to fiddle and experiment like as this stuff builds. Like that, that's okay. One thing that did surprise me a little bit as well is that at launch, they have 60 people. And that's a lot of people. So that makes it harder to iterate, actually. When you build very slowly, one by one, you have a chance to figure out if things are working. If they are, you incrementally layer on, on top of that. In startup world, like all you're constantly trying to do is manage surprise because it lurks around every corner. When you start with a big team and you're basically baking something in the oven and, and debuting it on day one rather than sort of doing it in, you know, in plain sight along, of course there are going to be things that, that will surprise them in this first you know, month or, or two that they made a big investment in this and it turns out that maybe they overestimated it. Maybe they underestimated it. I'm sure that there are many things they see that are initially successful that they would love to underwrite in new and powerful ways. So it probably gave them more comfort. Um, they certainly had the capital to build something significant from a, from a human capital perspective. But it's an interesting choice because I imagine that it will create some headaches as they do the fine tuning that we're all trying to do. And, and again, like I'm not trying to, to cop out here, but we're in this with them. When they first started, we all know Ben and, and uh, I know Justin a little bit, like we're all trying to figure out this next thing. There, there's a huge chasm in the market between frontline of defense, the Times, the Washington Post and CNN, and then on the other end, the Substacks and Patreons of the world. There's a wide, vacant middle that is being repopulated before our eyes. And um, we are happy to be shoulder to shoulder with those guys. John, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask you about Andrew Cuomo's podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Hey, John. So uh, we all know, we've talked about it. Dylan covered it a ton when it happened. Uh, Chris Cuomo's exit from CNN, which, you know, also probably brought down Jeff Zucker. Huge, huge scandal. He was fired, let go for reasons that are still a little 
a little hazy, like, you know, still tied up in lawyer land, but like. Yeah, it was, it was the standards thing was the, it, this ended up being a Watergate thing. You're right. There was a, an incident that, that just ignited everything else, or maybe even like Whitewater actually is a better example that, but I think it was the journalistic ethics thing that ended up being the actual uh, mousetrap that he stepped in. That's right. So he has a show now on News Nation, an eight o'clock show on News Nation. We know that it's not drawing a lot of ratings. News Nation doesn't get a lot of viewers, but he's trying something over there. What jumped out at me, though, is like a politics junkie last week, was that Andrew Cuomo is now hosting a podcast on a podcast uh, platform called Quake. And then other hosts on the platform include Laura Ingram, Sold Out O'Brien. He told Axios why he chose to start a podcast. Quote, there is a liberation that I feel and that he can tell the unvarnished truth. Um, and like the backdrop of some of this is both Chris Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo, like, you know, these dudes from another time feel like they were a victim of, you know, quote unquote, cancel culture and, and the woke mob, even though they wouldn't come out and say that. But beyond all that, John, like my question when we were texting before the podcast is like, who is this for? Like, who's going to listen to this? Or is it just like a vanity project? So like a guy who's been in politics his whole life can just keep talking into a microphone? You know, so Quake Media, which neither of us had heard of before um, we, we <laughs> got on here, uh, has those distinguished hosts that you mentioned, you know, Inc. Laura Ingram, Mike Huckabee, Pete Rose's Daily Picks, something that I'm going to tune into when we're done here. And I think this whole segment is motivated <laughs> by your- uh, Let him in the hall. Your anxiety. I, I, I do think Pete Rose should be in the hall after all this time. I think what, what he did was bad, but I think that the culture has recovered. It's a, it's a subscription service. It's sort of like a, a, a conservative luminary of the right, you know, I don't have a lot of faith in Andrew Cuomo as a, as a media star, but I do think that there is an emerging market that is really powerful with these sort of freedom of speech canceled Republicans and centrists who have a compelling message to what I think is a large and underserved audience. This was the Ben Shapiro play, that there's a huge audience that basically doesn't want to be told what to do. And I, and I think that is the, um, is the Cuomo mantra here. I listened to Chris Cuomo on Kara Swisher's podcast. And boy, this is a guy who doesn't have a whole lot of self-awareness and also just doesn't give a shit, like doesn't apologize at all for anything. I found it sort of ugly. But on the other hand, that plays to the erogenous zones of the Elon Musk and Joe Rogan and Donald Trump audience that like they can't tell us what to do, which is a, a really, really powerful talking point in parts of the right. And so I suspect that both Cuomo's are motivated by money. And I think that for Andrew, he needed a platform of some sort and a vessel. And I think that he has a chance to be a cult icon, sort of a, a Joan of Arc. I'm serious. I, I, I don't, I don't want to say this, but I think that I can see a future for him with huge speaking fees as a consultant to certain candidates who want to tap into this message and as someone who can basically pull off the like Newt Gingrich like book factory and, and, and write a new um, you know half political half kind of Gary Vaynerchuk book every year, I think he found commercially at least the, the right lane for his message. You know he fits right in on this Quake Media homepage, even though he was the Democratic governor of New York, who for a time was seen as the biggest threat to Donald Trump. On that note, I was just going to say over the weekend I had lunch with a couple. Republicans who were in Los Angeles out here doing some fundraising stuff. And one of them said, if Andrew Cuomo hadn't been brought down, I'd say he'd be the front runner to place Biden. And like, this is one of the first things I wrote for Puck, actually, was just like dumping on that whole idea. Like, he is a larger than life figure in New York. 
It was sort of based on his ability to control like the levers of power behind the scenes. Yeah, in Albany, not even in New York. In Albany, yeah, yeah, totally. A lot of casual observers of him and of politics and of Democrats assume he's some like titanic political genius. He is in some ways. Probably his worst asset as a politician were his like interpersonal skills. And like he could be kind of like charming in certain settings. Like his numbers are pretty good with black and brown people in New York. But like he could never set foot in like Iowa and South Carolina and like charm the pants off like a random, you know, farmer. That's why he never ran for president. That's why he kept running for governor after time. Yeah. Totally. So so that's my skepticism of him doing a podcast. But the flip side of that is too few politicians, especially people who have been, he's been at every lever of government. I mean, he's like HUD secretary under Bill Clinton. Like he's, he knows everyone. If you can like tell some great stories, like he doesn't like Tish James, you know? Like what if he just starts talking shit about Tish James and like her indictment of Donald Trump? Or like, what if he goes behind the scenes and talks about like what Shell Silver was really like before he went to jail? <laughs> or that one time I met with Hillary and like she said this or that, like, you know, I think not a lot of politicians actually pull back the curtain that much uh, on these things. And it would be kind of interesting if he starts to do that. It's funny, as you, I don't mean to be um, Andrew Cuomo's uh, business manager here. <laughs> as you're running through all these uh, details, which I agree with wholeheartedly, my eyes are getting big as I imagine the financial opportunity for him in just lobbying his former underlings, you know, on behalf of private equity or big banks. Anyone who's driven through Albany on 87 knows it's not the most glamorous city in the world, but there is so much money that trades hands there because that's where some, it's where a fair amount of Wall Street is regulated. Just because Cuomo's out of power doesn't mean he's lost his juice. And I think that there are huge contours of opportunity open to him to create trouble for people and, and create opportunities for various sectors of the, the financial services industry. And if he wants to keep his head above water by having a allegedly commercial podcast, then this seems like a, a vanity project that's going to keep his name in the news for a long time. If you were to compare the two Cuomos, I'd put my money on, on Andrew financially over Chris. Yeah, I mean, like the Chris Cuomo thing is a little grim because like uh, if you're a like, TV anchor reporter of a certain age, you don't have a lot of like transferable skills. Like you know how to be a TV anchor. And so there's not a lot of places for you to go, especially if you're like fall from the apex like he did. You could do local news uh, or you could do like the startup cable network and book Kanye West. <laughs> but, you know, Chris Cuomo also has a podcast. It's called the Chris Cuomo Project. And he's interviewed, he interviewed Stephen A. Smith, Bill O'Reilly, Whatever. I, I'd rather listen to Andrew Cuomo's podcast. I will say. I'm with you. If I have to pick one piece of Cuomo content, <laughs> it's going to be an Andrew Cuomo and not a Chris Cuomo. That's just me. All right, John. Have a good week, man. I'll see you in the Slack. All right. See you there, buddy. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.